Podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding The scripture reading for today is found in Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20. If you are using the Blue Pew Bibles, It's found on page 983. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. God's holy word. Let's uh, pray together and ask God to bless the preaching of his word. Oh, Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the richness of this passage in particular. We thank you for the way in which you fed us uh, with your son even for the past uh, four weeks. We pray, Lord, that by your spirit today, you would uh, you would bless us once again, that we would behold Christ, that we would lay hold of him. For we we are in desperate need of him even this morning. We take comfort in your promise, Lord, that your word will not return void but it will accomplish the purpose for which you set forth. We thank you for that and pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the, uh, the summer is a great time for me to do other reading outside of seminary reading because my life is dominated with seminary reading during the semester. And so I've been trying to read some more fiction. But I don't have the opportunity to do that regularly. And finally, with the prompting of Ben Graber... I've begun to read the Chronicles of Narnia. I know I'm probably the last person in here to have done that. Uh, And I'm through the first five books. Phenomenal, of course, as if I needed to say that. But I want to call your attention to the second book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's probably the one we're most familiar with. Even if you haven't read the book, you probably saw the movie or at least familiar with it. What I'd like to think about is this. What if the story had ended with the White Witch still in power and Narnia still covered with snow? What if Aslan hadn't done anything about what was going on in Narnia, the four children weren't put back on the throne in the end, 
And the book just stopped right there. And it ended with the white witch in power and everybody still in desperate need under her dominion. Now, just think about that. First of all, we probably wouldn't be talking about it right now if that's the way the story ended. It definitely wouldn't have been made into a movie and not even published, probably. But think about an ending to a story like that. How dissatisfying is that? How let down do you feel? How disappointing if you get to the end and that's it? Why do we long for redemption in stories so badly? Why is it that it gives us that incomplete feeling, that, that disappointing feeling, that, that letdown even, when a story is left unresolved or even unredeemed? Why is that? Is that just literary theory? Is that just something Aristotle points out, some of these characteristics in a story, and now over time we're just so used to it that when we don't have it, we kind of feel let down? Is that the reason why? Or is it something deeper than that? And I'm going to suggest this morning that it's actually something deeper than that. That it actually goes back to the fact that we are created in the image of God. And we long for redemption for that reason. We recognize that when something is wrong in a story like that, that needs to be made right, we know that. We recognize this is wrong, it needs to be made right. Redemption is necessary here. We need reconciliation, some resolution to this story. That's how God created us, I think. That's innate in us to recognize that when something needs resolution. Well, the final verses of this hymn that we'll look at this morning here are that point of reconciliation and this resolution in the grand story of history. This is the resolution. This is Aslan doing something about it. Christ is the main character, as we've said here. He's the most important in all of history. That His resurrection is the climax of that story. It's the most important event that's ever happened. We talked about that some last week. And we saw how we actually even experienced the beginning of this new creation now. That we lay hold of that now. And that's the promise of change for us. That's our hope of change that we have in union with Christ. And this new life gives us that power that we wouldn't have on our own. Well, what I want to look today at is the future hope of new creation. We have this again all because of Christ's resurrection. This is, this is what we'll look at. Christ's death and resurrection has accomplished and will accomplish the reconciliation of all things, whether on earth or in heaven, as Paul says. And here's the point. Christ's death and resurrection will make all things right in the end. He is the source of resolution, redemption, and reconciliation. And we'll look at this reconciliation from three different angles here. The first, the need for reconciliation. Secondly, the way of reconciliation. Finally, the result of reconciliation. Well, first, the need of reconciliation. If we look back to this passage, we're going to see that something has happened in the middle of this hymn that Paul doesn't actually say. We talked a couple weeks ago about how Christ is Lord over all creation. He talks about how intimately involved He is with His creation, that everything is sustained in Him, and in Him all things hold together. And we move from that point down to the church, which is the segue, and then into Him being King of new creation. It moves into this part of redemption and reconciliation. You're kind of going, okay, how do we get from this good creation over which Christ is, is ruling to redemption? 
What's happened? Something has gone on in between here. Well, if he's the great reconciler, if Christ is this great reconciler that he says he is in verse 20, then what's the assumption? What's happened? Well, it assumes that reconciliation has become necessary. Something happened to that creation that Christ was so intimately involved in that has rendered it in need of reconciliation. It's in need of redemption now. Something went terribly wrong with that creation that Christ originally was a part of. Now, Paul didn't say it in here. He doesn't come out and say it explicitly. But really, we don't need him to say this. I mean, this is something that's almost a given. And I wonder, I mean, it's speculation, but I wonder if that was Paul's point. That he didn't even need to say what had happened to the creation because we live this. We know that something is not right. We live in a world where death happens. We live in a world with sickness, where millions, literally, of people die every year from cancer and AIDS. We live in a world where natural disasters happen. Hurricanes devastate areas. Droughts happen. Crops fail. All these things we are so familiar with that Paul doesn't need to tell us what happened. He knows something went wrong here. And those are the drastic examples. We know this even on a more everyday level, too. Our work is hard. Work is difficult. We have relationships that are strained. We've got to work at them. They don't come easy. Marriages don't come easy. Relationships between children and their parents don't come easy. These are all things that have happened since creation. We face failure. We face disappointment. In the words of Cornelius Planiga, he wrote a book by this title, actually. We know that this is not the way it's supposed to be. We know something has gone terribly wrong with creation because there is real evil and there's real suffering in the world. For a lot of people, and this may even be you here this morning, this is the objection to Christianity. How could an all-good God, an all-powerful God, create a world that has fallen into the state that our world is in now? How can a good God allow suffering? How can evil enter into a world like that? I can't believe in a God who would allow that kind of suffering, and so I won't. And this is a huge issue, and this is something that we really, as believers and as those who struggle with this question, we need to be honest about it. This is maybe the most difficult issue in all of Scripture. And I'll mention this briefly as well, though, that the problem of evil, the fact that we experience evil and suffering, it's not something just that's unique to Christianity. Every person, every worldview has to explain where evil came from and even what evil is. And everybody has some kind of an answer for that, but they, they have to. This is part of what a worldview does. But our question is, how does the Bible deal with it? What, what is the source of evil and suffering in our world? What's the cause of it? The Bible traces it all the way back to Genesis 3. Again, if you're doing the, the Bible in a year, you're reading this probably the first day. Third chapter into the Bible, God is already dealing with this problem of suffering and of evil. To understand this passage this morning that we're going to look at, and even, and I think on a greater level, to understand and make sense of the suffering and evil that we even experience in our lives, we've got to understand what happened in the garden. 
what took place there that put us in the position that we're in today. When Eve took of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and Adam stood by and did nothing, what happened right there was cosmic treason. The entire creation was plunged into sin because of that one act. Adam and Eve had disobeyed the Creator God right there. They had thought, I know better than God. Did God really say we shouldn't eat of this? I'm going to believe the serpent and go ahead and take and eat of this fruit because I know better than God. This right there, that simple act, is where evil and suffering entered into our world. Something so simple and even almost mundane when we think about it. What's the big deal? The aid of a tree. This is the point, though, where the hostility and conflict began. This is the point where sin and suffering entered our world. This is the point where reconciliation became necessary. And it's important we realize, too, how broad of the scope of the effect of the fall had, too. It affected everything. It changed the world. It was comprehensive. It affected all of creation. There was nothing that was left untouched by sin. The fall touched everything. And I'll just deal with two specific relationships that were affected by this. The first, and it's probably the most obvious, the relationship between people and God. We have been estranged from our Creator now because of what happened in the garden. We're, we're created to be in relationship with God. That's how we were made. We're wired that way. And when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, that relationship was broken. And this is now the fate of every single human born. We're all in this state now. We fell with Adam, some theologians say. So, so we suffer the consequences of this and are estranged from our Creator. That relationship was severed. It's broken. And that's the state we're in apart from Christ. In, in this broken relationship with God. And, and now, I say that kind of quickly because that's probably not something new for you. A lot of people think that's really the, the summary of Christianity. It's how individuals get right with God. People need to get right with God. That's what the Bible's about. That's what Christianity's about. And so the focus ends up being that really that was all that was messed up at the fall. That this relationship between God and man was severed. Now that's absolutely true, but it was actually a whole lot more than that that was messed up. If we look here in, in our text this morning, we're going to see that the relationship between God and all of creation was ruined. Not just individual people, but all of creation. The fall affected everything. And the Old Testament even talks about the land being cursed. That the land was affected by the fall. And that sounds odd to us to think that, that physical objects, that the land itself could be touched by sin. But it is. That's the way the Bible describes it. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8. He's speaking here of the redemption that's going to come, but he, in so doing, he describes this, uh, the fall of creation itself. It says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Creation itself was doomed to corruption because of Adam and Eve's sin. It actually affected creation. God's entire creation was estranged from Him. That even that relationship was broken in the fall. 
And we don't realize this sometimes, but what does this mean practically? It means natural disasters now occur. Crops fail, droughts happen, hurricanes occur, floods take place. All of these things, this, this world, this creation itself now, isn't functioning the way God originally intended it to, to function. He didn't create it to function this way. So here's, here's the broad point. Everything that went wrong in the world can be traced back to the fall. Every single thing, every single tear shed, every single sickness, every single disease, every single natural disaster, every single death can be traced back to Genesis 3. It all happened there. Again, even in that chapter though, we see that God is going to do something about it. He didn't leave His creation, nor did He leave His people in this broken relationship. He decided to redeem creation. He entered into this problem. He addressed it Himself. To reconcile this broken relationship, to make things right, to make all the world right, the second person of the Trinity actually took on flesh. And that's what we'll see here, the way of reconciliation. Look back to our passage for this morning here, verse 19 in particular. It says, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell bodily. Christ is the God-man. That's what this passage is saying. This verse says that He's the image of the invisible God. As such, He is the only mediator between God and man. The only one. He, he, this, and this really does fit well when we start thinking about the concept of reconciliation. You know, there, there's a growing field in legal practice now of people who are becoming mediators rather than lawyers. So a lot of companies and two parties disagreeing, rather than go to court, would rather hire a mediator to have them work through whatever it is that the problem is, to have them help make things right, what had gone wrong in that relationship. Christ is our mediator. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Him, and so He's the only one that can make this relationship right. He's the only one that can, that can fix what was broken. Now, the question is, how did he accomplish this reconciliation? He took on flesh, but, but what happened then? How did he make things right? We'll look to verse 20. And through him, it's through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And notice that last phrase, making peace by the blood of his cross. If you're reading from the NIV, it actually says by making peace through His blood shed on the cross, which really does get at the meaning there. It was through Christ's death on the cross that this peace was made. That's the source of the peace. This gulf of animosity and hostility that had existed there was fixed by Christ's death on the cross. That is the source of reconciliation. The rift was healed that was there. But the cross tells us something else too, and this is huge. The reconciliation that Christ won came at a price. And Paul's probably using that word blood there on purpose. It brings to mind that Old Testament imagery of sacrifice. And we're all familiar with that having read through the Old Testament. The rebellion that took place in the garden, that severing of the relationship between God and His creation required atonement. And that the book of Hebrews is rich on that topic. Jesus had to provide the sacrifice. This wasn't a relationship 
where we could just say sorry, God could just say, that's okay, don't worry about it. His justice had to be satisfied. He had to have atonement for sin. Sin had to be dealt with. That's what the cross did, was deal with sin. You've got to notice, even here, it's God who provides this atonement. It's God who provides the sacrifice. And that in the person of His own Son. What's so important for us to remember here, this is what God has done about evil and suffering in the world. We don't have a God who stands on the sidelines as some disinterested spectator, watches from afar to see evil and suffering happening in your own life. This is not the kind of God that we have. The kind of God we have is one who Himself, through the person of His Son, entered into creation and entered into that evil and suffering. That is the God that we have. And this is so important for us to grasp as we think about and wrestle with the problem of suffering, the problem of evil. Christianity is the only religion in which God actually enters into the suffering of His people. It's the only religion. And I know that might not provide the sort of answer that we'd like to have on why is there suffering, why is there evil. But to say that God Himself in the person of Jesus has entered into that suffering says so much. This can change our perspective on what our suffering really is and how we're to endure it. Jesus experienced suffering on the cross in a way we can't even begin to imagine. And I'm not just talking about the physical agony. You know, in high school, the ministry I was involved in would emphasize the physical pain that Christ suffered on the cross. It would get into some really detailed talks even about what crucifixion really entailed and how terrible of a death it really was. And that can have a significant impact on somebody. If anybody saw here the the, uh, Passion of the Christ a few years ago, that really was the focus of that movie, to see just what crucifixion actually entailed. And of course it's horrible. It's brutal. But what's impacted me the past few years, more so than even the physical agony, are the words that Jesus says on the cross. Both Matthew and Mark record this in their Gospel. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? This is Jesus Himself, the Son of God, crying out to His Father, who is very, in a very real way turned His back on His own Son on the cross. And now, you think even in a father-son relationship that we have now that we experience, that's terrible to think about, that the Father's pouring out His wrath on His Son. But the relationship that they experienced before is so much beyond what any father, human father and human son could experience. This is perfect fellowship in, within the Trinity, within the Godhead for all eternity. That, that fellowship that the Father and the Son had together was torn apart on the cross. That's what Jesus is saying right there. His own Father has forsaken Him. And for what reason? For our reconciliation. This is what the cross was. For our reconciliation to take place, Christ's relationship with His Father had to be torn apart. I want you to think about what that means for your suffering this morning. It means that Jesus knows the suffering and evil that you are enduring right now. He knows it. 
And when you're thinking nobody knows the pain you're enduring, nobody can know what it is that you're experiencing right now because people haven't suffered what you're suffering. You're right. They, they can't. They don't know what it's like to be in the spot that you're in right now. Jesus knows. Jesus has been there. He suffered on the cross in a way that is even beyond our own suffering. And of course, I've thought so much about this in the past year and a half in our church with all that's gone on. And this has been the comfort. Jesus knows our suffering. He died on the cross to reconcile us to God. This is, this is what His reconciliation was doing. This is the way we're reconciled. We could call our salvation reconciliation. And not just us, but all of creation. He mended what was torn. He made right what was wrong. And this is the most glorious part of it, is the result of this reconciliation. This is what Christ's death accomplished then and what we're looking forward to, our future hope here. Look back to verse 20 again. I want you to notice how this reconciliation is described here. Paul says that Christ has reconciled to Himself all things, whether in heaven or on earth. All things. Do you see the scope of that right there? Everything will be reconciled. And it's all through Christ. Jesus' death and resurrection makes right all that the fall made wrong. Every single thing. And it's, it's exhaustive. It's comprehensive. It's complete. It's cosmic. It encompasses everything. Everything will be made right. And that phrase, whether on earth or in heaven, probably sounds familiar. It comes from uh, verse 16 there too. Where Paul is describing the scope of Jesus' control over creation. We could say that, that everything that he created, he's now redeemed. But that's, that's how broad his scope is, is. The dominion that he has over everything, the control of creation, is just as broad as his reconciliation. That's how wide it is. That's how much it, it encompasses. And you, you can think here about what this means. Everything in heaven and on earth has been reconciled. It's cosmic in scope. This means that we're not just talking about people being reconciled to God. It's not just that. Christianity is not a religion where the objective is to be free of these physical bodies that we have so that we can be in the clouds floating with the angels in some disembodied state. That's not what the Bible teaches as the end of all things. A lot of times that's the way we think, that there's just this this reconciliation between God and individual people, and the culmination of that is going to be the, the, this disembodied state where we're with Jesus apart from these sinful physical bodies. That's not what Paul says here. Jesus is redeeming all of creation. Every single bit of it. We're talking about new creation here. New heavens and new earth with real physical things. Real physical creation. Not this disembodied spiritual kind of thing. Real physical creation will be made new. And this is really the hope of the whole Bible. This is how the Jews understood their salvation. They were looking for this land of promise, which was going to be a real land of promise. We're looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth. This reconciliation is not just about redeeming individuals. It's certainly about that, of course, and that's, that's maybe even the hallmark of Christ's redemption. 
It's about redeeming His people for sure. But it includes everything. The entire cosmos will be redeemed. Everything will be made right in the end. And this is why it's significant that Paul says in this same verse that peace is attained. Peace is attained. And that Christ's death brought peace. And of course, we've mentioned this before, but this would bring to mind the Hebrew idea of peace, which is much more than just there's no longer any conflict. It's not, it's not just that. Again, it certainly is that, but it's so much more than that. It's to be whole. It's to be uninjured, to be safe, to be sound, to be made whole, where everything is made right. All of creation will experience this. You notice, too, that this reconciliation has been accomplished, is the way Paul speaks of it here. It's past tense, which is interesting. He's saying that this new creation has begun. We can have this relationship with Christ now. And again, this is part of what Paul's telling his original audience. All the wisdom and knowledge and access to the divine comes through Christ alone. It's not through these other practices that the false teachers are advocating. It comes through Christ alone. The new relationship of that reconciliation happened with Christ's death and new creation began with His resurrection. Now, of course, we just have a taste of this now. My, uh, my brother and his fiancée are in the process of, of setting the plans for their wedding reception. They're about to pick the menu. And, of course, in that process, they go to the location and taste all of these foods. They're sampling all these foods. What is it they want to have? You think about that. With this taste comes just an appetizer. You have a real taste of this food and you're always left wanting more. That's why we say the word appetizer for that reason. You're really tasting it. It's a real genuine taste. But you know that it's just a small hint of the enjoyment that you're going to have when you actually enjoy that feast. Just a small taste of it. But a, a real taste nonetheless. We have a taste of this new creation now. But it's the future hope that we've got to cling to. While we have just this taste now, we will, when Christ returns, lay hold of the new heavens and the new earth in all its fullness, where everything will be made right. Evil and suffering will be done away with. Of course, now we still live in this tension. We mentioned the past couple of weeks the already and not yet. That we, kind of li- we live in, in this tension between the new age and the old age. The kingdom is broken in now. New creation has begun. But we still live in this present evil age and still experience the effects of the fall. The hymn we sang this morning, This is My Father's World, grasps this overlap really well in the last verse. I'm going to read it now. This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be one. That last sentence is the hope of new creation. Earth and heaven will be made one. That's even how John describes it in Revelation 21. That earth, that heaven will come down and meet with earth and will be the new Jerusalem. We have got to rest in the hope of the new heavens and new earth. That is our place where we will rest and find peace. Now, what I don't want you to hear this as is just a pat answer 
to any and all suffering. This isn't some kind of hope. It's just to be thrown around lightly in the midst of suffering. I think this is one of the most difficult things we want to tell people. We want to quote Romans 8.28, that all this is working together for good. And that can be said so tritely sometimes. Of course, with good intentions. But we need to recognize that this evil and this suffering that we actually experience is real. And it's not something that just one sentence thrown to you is going to take care of. We have to be sensitive to that. Suffering is real and it hurts. We have to be honest about that. At the same time, we've got to be confident that the promises of Scripture that we read are what the Spirit, who is the Great Comforter, actually uses in those times of suffering. We've got to be confident of that as well. So there's this balance there where we're not to throw these things around lightly. But of course, this is our source of comfort. And we have to continually point one another to these promises. This is our hope. You may be sitting here thinking this morning, uh, this is good about suffering. My life is good right now, though. I'm not enduring anything. It's hard for you to empathize with those who are dealing with suffering this morning. This is the time to grasp these promises. This is the time to understand what it is that Christ says about new creation and what He will do in making things right. Because when something does come along, which it inevitably does because that's the world we live in, this is what we have to cling to. The promises of Scripture here. For those of you who are suffering this morning, be comforted by this. What you long for is coming. Not tomorrow, maybe not the next day, but it's coming. The hostility, the evil, the suffering, death, everything bad that we understand on such a deep personal level is going to be made right in the end. And it's, if you think about this, it's, it's hard to even imagine what this will even be like. We can read about the new heavens and the new earth. We can read about being without suffering, but it's almost inconceivable for us. We just can't even, we can't get there. A place with no jealousy, no hatred, no suffering, no sickness, no tears, no pain, no natural disasters, nothing anymore. Everything is good. Everything is made right. We may not be able to understand that and grasp that, but what we can understand and grasp is that it is coming. It will be here. And this is the Gospel. This is the good news. This is the message of the Bible. Christ is the risen Lord that dealt with sin on the cross. He paid the price for sin on the cross and He ushered in a new kingdom with His resurrection. And that He will return and He will make things completely right. What His resurrection will be, began, He will complete in the end when He returns. This is our hope. He will be King over all. He will be all in all, as the Scripture says. He will reign for all eternity. And it will be His kingdom where there is no suffering. Where there is no more pain. Where there are no more tears. It will be completely done away with. This is the Gospel. Not just how you're right with God, but how God is making all things right. That's what we've got to cling to. I want to close this morning with another quote from a 
from the Jesus Storybook Bible. This is the way that the new heavens and the new earth are described. At the end of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22. This is our hope we're giving here. One day, John knew heaven would come down and mend God's broken world and make it our true, perfect home once again. And he knew in some mysterious way that would be hard to explain that everything was going to be more wonderful for once having been so sad. And he knew then that the ending of the story was going to be so great it would make all the sadness and tears and everything seem just like a shadow that is chased away by the morning sun. I'm on my way, said Jesus. I'll be there soon. John came to the end of his book, but he didn't write the end. Because, of course, that's how stories finish. And this one's not over yet. So instead, he wrote, come quickly, Jesus. Which perhaps is really just another way of saying, to be continued. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You that You have conquered death. That You are reversing the effects of death even. You will reign over all. That Your kingdom will be here in its fullness. That You will make all things right. All suffering and evil will be completely done away with. Lord, we thank You that we have a Savior that we do in Christ. One who has suffered and been tempted in every way and yet was without sin. One who knows suffering in a way so much more intimately even than we experience. The wrath of His own Father poured out on Him that He might reconcile us to God. That He might make the world right. Oh Lord, we praise You that this is our hope. We pray that You would comfort us by Your Spirit with these truths. Help us to deal honestly and genuinely with the struggle of suffering and evil in the world and in our own lives. Lord, we can't deal with this on our own. We can't, we can't fool ourselves into, making, uh, into thinking that things aren't the way they are. We pray, Lord, that by Your Spirit You would comfort us with this hope. That You are making all things new. Lord, we thank You so much for this message that is a message that allows us even to live day to day. We praise You, O Lord, and give You all glory and honor. Thank You even for this word. In Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, O oh, come with blissful rain, great radiant through the shades of night. Chase my fears away Won't you chase my fears away
shall my soul with rapture trace. 